You'll take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Samuel. We've been doing the study on the life of David. And so last week we were in 1 Samuel, and we were, or not last week, but two weeks before. Jim was there last week. But two weeks ago we looked at how um, David got into this covenant relationship with Jonathan and how God talks about and teaches us about Hesed love, the loyal love that he gives that is always sure. And so we're going to be looking today at a passage that's probably not the most popular of uh, the stories of David. We don't remember this very often. It's not the David and Goliath passage. It's not um, David and Bathsheba. It's not uh, David and the kingdom. It's David receiving an amazing promise. And so today I'm going to be, and I think I can figure this out, um, we have a graph and I stole this from Dr. Richard Pratt in my prophets class, but I think it's applicable as a way of introduction for us to understand the covenant promises. And it gives, should give us an understanding that, again, from the beginning of Genesis to Revelation, it's one story. And it's one story that God has written about specifically His Son, Jesus Christ. And so what we start with is we start with a covenant. Here we go. Can you see that? Sort of. So you start with first the covenant with Adam. And so Adam and Eve were brought into the, in, they had relations with, with God. They walked with God. They talked with God. But then they sinned. And there was that, that time where they were thrown out of the garden. But God gave to them the proto-evangelon in Genesis 3.15. He said from the seed of the woman's going to become a Messiah who's going to crush the head of Satan, but in the meantime will be bit, bitten in his heel. And so it goes on from there to Noah. In Noah, in Genesis 6 through 9, you have where God flooded the whole earth because it was so corrupt, but yet he gives to them the promised blessing. He says, I will no longer destroy it this way. I'm going to raise up a people for myself. And then you go to Abraham, and Abraham is brought out of Ur of the Chaldees. He's brought out of this pagan land. And God says, go. And he doesn't tell him where. He just says, go, and I'm going to make you this great nation. And you're going to have um, offspring, the numbers of the sands of the seashore. And yet he didn't even have his own son, and they were late in the years. And so they're waiting for the promise to be fulfilled. And God says, trust me. This will happen. So Abraham is brought out. Then you have Moses, and we saw the life of Moses uh, a couple of sermon series ago. And we get to see how God brought His people. He saves him, um, Moses, first of all, in an ark. He saves him miraculously. He raises him up in Pharaoh's household, and he's the one who comes and brings the people of God out. Brings them into the desert. God sustains them. God feeds them and clothes them for 40 plus years, even after they had rebelled. And then he sends them in to the promised land. And now we find ourselves with David. And at David, this is the promise that God gives to David, that there is going to be an eternal kingdom that's set up. There will always be someone on the throne. There will always be someone that will be the Messiah, the king. And so then you see here there's a split into Israel and Judah. There's a splitting of the kingdom afterwards with Solomon. And then you see after that, there's um, you have Assyria, you have Babylon that come in and destroy, and it seems like the kingdom's gone. It seems like the kingdom's gone forever, but God comes in, and then He inaugurates right there with a the cross. He brings the Savior. He brings Jesus. And that inaugurates because he defeats sin and death in the world and he, he dies for our sins on the cross and then he gives to us his righteousness, his perfection after he rises from the dead. And now we're in the, first, the continuation. 
We're supposed to be bringing about the kingdom of God here on earth. It's what we prayed in the, in the Lord's Prayer. It should be our desire. How do we bring God's kingdom here? Because we await the day where you see the second C, the big picture, the consummation. And that's where we're going to be with God. And He's going to be there. And we won't, there no longer will even be a need for our Son. His radiance his, his overwhelming presence will be enough for us to see all things. And we'll be there and we'll get to worship Him and to honor Him. That's the story of the Bible. And so what was true to, to Adam and Eve is true to us and to our offspring and to all those until we find the time where we're in the new heavens and the new earth. And so that's what he's talking, and this is where that promise comes to David. And I think you need to understand this background so that we're ready to hear um, and unpack this passage. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and then begin to look at this passage specifically. Heavenly Father, again, our prayers are very simple. Lord, make us look more like our Savior. More, Lord, may us trust You more. Be encouraged more. And then may we respond by coming to You as our forefathers David and others have done over the years, that we would respond in praise and worship because You are the King of kings and You are the Lord of lords. And to You, all praise and glory and honor is due. Lord, may that be true of us this morning. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So if you look at this passage, the first point we're going to look at is how did David try to honor God? So if you look at uh, 2 Samuel 7, the verse three cha- uh, first three verses, it says, Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Now we're going to unpack this a little bit because one, David now has time to reflect. So again, we just crossed over a lot of history. David has been chased by Saul. He's been been tried to kill. Uh, David has now ascended to the throne. He has defeated his enemies. And now he finds himself at a place of rest. And we know that because it says specifically he is resting from his enemies, but he's also seated on the throne. And that's a big deal. That's where Christ is. He's no longer the warrior aspect. He is seated on his throne and he intercedes. And the sitting is a place of rests. And so as we begin to look at that, then what happens is we should look and say, okay, what, what are our wars? We're still supposed to be waging war against the flesh. Do you own struggle with your own sin? I do. There's still the, the struggle of just like, well, wait a minute. I get paid to be holy. I get paid to come here and to study the Word and stuff like that, and there's still struggles. There's still sin. And there's that, that war that rages. We're supposed to be fighting against the world. When you look out of the world, do you see things great? Or do you see the struggles? And against Satan himself, it tells us that we are supposed to go out and assail the very gates of hell themselves. And so this, this waging continues on, but yet God a lot of times gives us times of rest and relaxation. It's a time where we get to, to kind of slow down, where He gives us, um, where He takes us. Again, God doesn't always put us in situations where it's high pressure, high pressure, high pressure, high pressure. He gives us grace and mercy. He gives us times to, to stop and to rest. And when we have times to, to rest, it's also a time for assessment. Right? When you get times and you get time to kind of say, man, okay, I get to think, I get to take a breath, I get to, to take a moment to myself. It, what happens is it allows us to reset. 
right? It allows us to reset to important things. So a lot of us go on vacations. A lot of us um, have times where we uh, get significant other relationships. There's family reunions that go on. You go on vacations with your children or your spouses, or you, you have things where, again, you're trying to reconnect with other people. But the question is, do we take that time to reconnect with God? Do we, again, give the opportunity to make the most important things the most important things again? There are multiple stories out there of people, generals and, and people, officers who found themselves in warfare, who still found time that when they would take their R&R would go and reread and catch up where they were as, to, as they were supposed to be reading through the Scripture. And they would pray, and they found themselves still going. It didn't matter that there was all this pressure around them. They were going to find the time to make the Lord the most important thing. And here's what David's doing. This is a good thing. I mean, I know there's some people we'll talk about it um, who kind of look at this and, and kind of look at David kind of in a snotty way and, and saying that this was really a bad thing that David did. I don't think that's the reality. I think what David is, is he's doing something good for God. He's taking assessment. And so what he does is he wants to give thanks. And so what he does, he, he recognizes first and foremost that there is uh, the opportunity to recognize God. Now, again, we all know that there are different ways to recognize people, Right? There's medals. You know, we talk about people who are in the military, and then we say, well, sometimes people in the military don't want to be recognized by medals. They just want to be thought of well of. There's people who get bonuses in your work because you are recognized. There are plaques that people give to us and say thank you. Okay, you all, again, please, I'll get something where somebody goes, you said the pastor's appreciation was a crock. Please understand. Please don't. I'm grateful that you guys give me. I will take as many gifts that you give to me. Okay, there's no problem there. I don't want you to be guilted into it, though. So please understand that I love to be recognized. Everybody does. Let's be honest. Now, we might have different ways that we like to be recognized, but we all like to be recognized. We have a homecoming queen sitting with us from O'Galley. That was a great thing. It's cool to be recognized by your peers. So that's a, that's a neat thing to happen. However, um, the way that David wants to recognize God, he just says, hey, I'm sitting in this house of cedar, okay, which is pretty much unheard of, right? It's extravagant. So he's sitting in something extravagant, and he looks over, and he notices that, again, the ark of the covenant of God, God's throne, is still in the tent. And so David begins to, to recognize and go in his head, and he goes, how can I honor God? Now, again, why do people think uh, that David's doing something wrong here? Let me give you the background. It is during this time and in this day and age of David that people, when they had a victory, they will build a temple to their God. And the way they, the reason why they built the temple was to kind of say, hey, I want you to continue to give me victory in the future. It's almost like saying, hey, um, I'm going to kind of bribe you. So I'm going to give you something nice so that you continue to do good things for me. So some people are thinking that's what David's doing for God. David's just doing what all other kings do. God gave him the victory, so he's going to build this temple for God, and so God will continue to give him victories. I really don't believe that's what David's doing. I really believe that David is trying to honor God because David truly did want the best for God, and I think he's doing this because he really has a concern, but he's also talking, listen, to Nathan the prophet. He's not going out and he's not trying to get... Um, recognition from anybody else he's not trying to get um, input from anybody else he's going to the man of God and saying I really want to honor God what do you think about this and so Nathan right off the bat says hey the Lord is with you you go and do what you want to do go build the house 
Now God now comes in, steps into this part, and He says, no. (laughs) No, but I'm going to teach you something here. Now, I don't know if you've ever received the wrong gift, okay? And probably when I said that, you're already thinking about that gift that you were just like, I cannot believe that person ever gave that to me. Did they not know me? Did they not understand what was going on? Okay? And I'm not going to say any gifts that my children gave to me or my wife because they've always given me the right gifts. But her parents, on the other hand, have always been like, do you even know me? Why would I want a candle holder? I'm not even artistic. I don't even understand or comprehend that kind of stuff. I'm someone, and they know that I like Florida State. They know that I like football and meat, red meat and mashed potatoes and all that kind of stuff. So why give me something artsy? But they do. So there's a reality where sometimes wrong gifts are given. Now, again, I don't think that's the understanding of what I think David had good intentions. But he does give to God something that God doesn't want. Now, what I want you to understand that there's the word that comes to Nathan at this point. So this is something unique because God comes to Nathan and says to Nathan, now go tell this to David. And so what he does is he says, I want you to know me, the Lord. Now, one of the things that I get quite often is, um, first of all, how do you become a Christian? But then another thing that I get from people is, how do I know the will of God? That's a question for a lot of people in regards to their Christian walk. How do I know what the will of God is for me? And I'm going to give this to you because I think this is part of this, the Scripture here. So the first thing you need to do is you need to go to the Word of God. And that's what David was getting. He was getting a specific Word of God through Nathan the prophet. So again, you should ask yourself the question. If I can go to the Bible and say, if this is the job for me, does it fulfill all the things that scripture says and if it's not then that's probably not a job you should go to okay if you're called to be a mercenary to go out and murder people that's probably not what god is calling you to do not going to do it because it's not in the bible you can't do that okay but i can go to the word of god and i can say well you know this job doesn't tell me that i can't do this and it doesn't tell me that i should do this but how do i know then well the next thing you do is you go to those who are godly and you ask their opinion. Okay, you go and you ask godly men and women, what do you think about this? This is what I'm thinking about doing, or this is who I'm thinking about marrying, or this is where I'm thinking about moving. This is the things, the issues that I'm going through. And I went through the scripture. The scripture doesn't say I can't do this. It doesn't say I can't marry this person. It doesn't say that I can't move to this place like South Carolina or anything like that. Um, but what, what am I supposed to do with this? And godly men and women will give you godly wisdom and so once you receive god's word you receive godly wisdom from other christians then the last thing that god allows you to do is to trust your heart and he says what are the desires of your heart again god's not up there saying i hope you guys are miserable he wants to encourage you he wants to to use you he wants to build you up he wants to to bring you into places where you are are again enjoying him forever And so this is what David does. David hears from the Lord a specific passage, and we'll look back at it. He hears from the Lord. He's talking to Nathan. And so he hears, hey, I'm not the one supposed to build this house. Now, there's a specific purpose for this. Look in your Bibles, uh, verses 4 through 7. And listen to this. It says, but that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? 
Have I not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day? But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I ever speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Okay? So again, what David is figuring out, what he's hearing from the Lord through Nathan, is this, that he wants the heart of the people. God wants to dwell with his people. He's not looking for a building. And I'm glad we have this building. And this building is going to be used to God's glory to impact this area. And hopefully for generations and people around the world. But God is not kept here. And he's not kept in any house or any tent. God wants to be with his people. He never asked for a house. He wanted to be with his people. Let me give you this illustration, and, and some of you know it if you're a part of the PCA um, and you've heard about this uh, specific person. His name was Robert McQuillan. And Robert McQuillan was the president of Columbia Bible College for 20-plus years. A great, godly man. Um, and what happened is in the latter part of his years at Columbia Bible, his wife, uh, Muriel, uh, started to find Alzheimer's, the onset of Alzheimer's. And so the story goes that what um, Dr. McQuillan does is he actually leaves being the president of the seminary to go and spend the rest of the years taking care of his wife and loving on her. And the expression of love is amazing. But I found out as I was doing the, the study this week that there's a little bit more of the part to the story. Because two years before he retired, uh, Dr. McQuillan had someone come in to watch his wife while he went to work. And so he, was, he lived a mile away, and so he would walk into the Bible college. Um, but what happened and why he ultimately retired is because his wife started getting bloody feet. Now, the reason why she got bloody feet is because when her husband left, she was so overwhelmed that she would begin to walk the mile uh, plus in bare feet. And she was doing this sometimes, they said, up to 10 times a day. And so she would end up blooding her feet. And so they went to the doctor and they were asking the doctor, and this is what the, the doctor said um, to Robert. Even though her mind's beginning to fail, her heart and her habits animate her body to go with you every day. That's love. And the question is, we understand that God has that love to us. But how do we respond? Is our hearts... And our heads so animated that we long to be in God's presence, that we long to have interaction with Him, that we long to just be, just to know Him evermore. Because the reality is, if we're honest, I think, is most of us believe that God loves the world, but we're not sure He loves me. God, I can get the big picture. I can get the picture that you died to save the world, but you wouldn't have died to save me. And that's one of the biggest lies Satan has. Because what God does is He says, I love you so much. I didn't get bloody feet. I allowed my son to have bloody hands and a bloody side and to die upon a cross for you. I want to be with you so intimately that I've given you everything. And so He tells us that story because God wants to be near us because He has hesed love, loyal love. And He knows we need to be close to Him because... Remember when you were a little kid and you got hurt? Who do you run to? You run to your parents. In all things, we should be running to God. He's there. He's always there. What an incredible gift. So he tells David, thanks, but no thanks. But what he also does to David is he, he makes this comparison in regards to the covenant relationship. 
And he says something very specific to David here. And I want you to catch it. We don't really catch it in the, in the um, English language here. Um, but listen, at starting in verse 8. It says, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you, you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place, not to be disturbed any more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. So he goes and he starts to tell the story to David. And he says, David, I'm going to make a promise with you. Now, we understand covenant, the, the, the graph behind me that was up there. We understand covenant relationships. And we understand that with Abraham, they actually cut the pieces of the animals in half and let the blood run to the middle. There's also another covenant, though. And it's called the Suzerain Treaty. And it's something that's made up at this time. And it's different from this because that was said, if either one of the sides breaks covenant, then we should be killed. But there's a suzerain treaty, and the suzerain treaty is this place where it's the master to the servant. And so what we are seeing here is where God is making a covenant relationship with David. If you don't believe that, go to Psalm 89. That's the psalm David writes in regards to this passage. And he calls it out very specifically. This is a covenant between God and David and his offspring. And so this covenant relationship is sustained. And he says, here's the first thing I'm going to do for you, David. I'm going to give you a great name. And he takes this shepherd boy, this know-nothing person, and he makes him the king of his people. Now, part of that is the understanding of there is no insignificant people in this room. God can take anyone and do incredible things in whatever time period he sees through. You are worth and you are even sometimes worthy because of Christ. And He can use you to build His kingdom and to do great things, and He's going to give you a great name. And do you understand that every one of you, if you are a Christian, you have a special name that God has given to you that only He knows right now. Are you looking forward to the day where you get to figure out your name? Yeah, that's cool. I want like some kind of warrior name or something like that. But He knows it. And he's going to call me, and I will have a specific name that is mine and mine alone. You don't have to worry about, well, which Jeffrey Wayne are you talking about? Are you talking about Jeffrey Wayne Hauser or Jeffrey Wayne Godwin? Which Jeffrey? There's going to be a specific name that we're known by, and it's going to be our great name. Then he also tells him, not only am I going to give you a great name, but I'm going to give my people a place. This is a land that God is dwelling with us, and it's a land that's cut off from all of our enemies. You're tired of fighting? You're tired of bickering? There's going to be a place where there's no more pain, no more tears, no more bickering, no more assaults. It's going to be a land where we dwell. And not only that, it's going to be a place where we get to rest. No more afflictions. The Lord says, and He says it very specifically, He says, the Lord declares it. It's a assured promise. The Lord declares that we're going to have an everlasting kingdom. Now that's something unique because that's not just to David. Because what happens here when you start looking at verse 11 to the end, it says, From that time I appointed judges over all my people, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. No, moreover, the Lord declares that the Lord will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled, listen, he's saying to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down when your fathers, when you're dead, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come after you from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And he will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Solomon. He said, I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, 
I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before me. And now listen to this. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all of these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Now what he's doing is he's moving from the individual to God's people. And he's saying... Very specifically, one, death cannot defeat it. Even though David dies, the understanding of the throne of God being established forever doesn't die. Yes, there's Solomon, but he's talking specifically when we go to the New Testament and Jesus takes this promise and he says, I am the answer to the promise. I am the one who's come from the line of David. That's why in in the Gospels, it takes very clear um, understanding that we know that both um, Joseph and Mary are from the line of David. That's significant. It's significant that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. It's significant that Jesus was born of a virgin. All of that is significant. And it says that there is the one Messiah, the one, Jesus, who fulfills every promise that I'm giving to you, David. There's going to be one established on his throne forever, never to be removed. So death cannot stop it. And then it also says sin can't defeat it. It doesn't matter that Solomon, it doesn't matter that the kingdom is split. It doesn't matter that the people of God leave and go their own way. God is faithful. We learned that last week from Jim Woodle. Remember, he says, even when we're faithless, God is faithful. That's what we hold on to. That's the good news. That even when you mess up, if you are God's, he never leaves you nor forsake you. He's there for you during the good times and the bad times. No matter what the trials or tribulations you go through, He is there with you. And it doesn't matter because He has paid the sacrifice. And He paid it through Jesus Christ, who was our sin. The one person who should have never died. And they state that. Pilate says, this man I find no fault. This is the one man who should never go to a cross. But because I'm afraid of this mob and what it's going to do, I'm going to send an innocent man to the cross. And that God said, you're doing exactly what I told you to do. Because if Jesus Christ doesn't die on the cross, then your sins are not paid for. But he pays the ransom. And he becomes sin for us. So that we never have to deal with hell. And so Jesus becomes that. So death can't stop it. Sin can't defeat it. And it doesn't matter how much time goes by. It's a forever throne. There is someone who is established and this kingdom is forever. I want you to actually turn with your, in your Bibles to Psalm, I mean Psalm, to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21, verse 22. And as you're turning, again, I want you to think of the the graph that was up there, the thing that started with Adam and Eve in the garden where they walked and they talked with God to the fulfillment of the consummation. This is what we're looking to. Revelation chapter 21, verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will not be night there. They will bring into the the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And now going to chapter 22. 
And then the angel showed me the river of water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, and also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree were, were there for the healing of the nations. And no longer will there be anyone, anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and servants will worship Him. And they will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. There will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Pretty cool? That's our hope. That's our desire. To be with our King forever. Forever. Be encouraged, church. Because listen, God does not just make promises. Anybody can make promises. Anybody. He's a promise keeper. And His Word never fails. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we thank You that Your kingdom is a kingdom that is everlasting. Lord, we were told that death, sin, time, man's wisdom can't stop it. Your will will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. And for that, we don't cringe. It's in that hope that we rejoice because we know that Your promise is sure because we see it in Your Son, Jesus Christ, who gave His life as a ransom for our sin, but then gives to us His righteousness so that we might be called the sons and the daughters of the King of Kings. Father, come soon and let us be faithful to go and tell, Lord, others who still yet to recognize that they're a part of the family of Jesus Christ. Go with us now, but receive all glory and honor for we pray this in Christ's name and all God's people said, Amen.